Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. Hi guys, quick disclaimer before we start today's episode, the discussion you're about to hear was actually recorded at the end of 2022, but we're sharing it now because we still think it's relevant, even though the particulars might have moved on here and there. What we're discussing is the crisis of liberalism, the deep crisis of liberal capitalist institutions. Obviously, the center grounds went through a period in the past several years where it was battered from pillar to post by one crisis after another. Uh, You had the accelerating crisis of capitalism after the 2008 crash. You had the Brexit referendum in Britain. You had the rise of so-called populism, the election of Donald Trump in the USA. You had political movements on the left, like the Corbyn movement in Britain. You had insurrections in one country after another, all throughout Latin America, in Lebanon, in Sudan, Algeria as well, the Gilets jaunes movement in France. So all in all, things were looking pretty bleak for establishment liberals. But in 2022, a number of bourgeois pundits got it into their heads that with the election of Macron for another term in France, with the ousting of Liz Truss and the imposition of Rishi Sunak, the establishment's man in Britain, liberal capitalist democracy was making a comeback. Now, these people understood nothing at the time. They still understand nothing. The crisis of capitalism is accelerating. Politics remains extremely polarized and extremely volatile. And in general, liberalism, which is what, if not a cover for the interests of capital with a friendly face, is incredibly discredited, particularly amongst the young who are increasingly looking towards radical solutions. The only thing that's lacking is any kind of left-wing alternative on the political front to give expression to that desire for an alternative amongst the workers and youth. So this general picture remains the same. This deep crisis and discrediting of liberalism remains relevant this year. So we still think this is a discussion worth sharing, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to International Marxist Radio. I'm Joe Attard, and today we have Ben Gleneski from the editorial board of Socialist.net, also an activist for Socialist Appeal, the British section of the International Marxist Tendency. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks, Joe. Great. So I wanted to bring you in to talk about an article in the Financial Times, which I wasn't sure whether to laugh or cry when I read mm. it. Um, the, the the level of brazen idiocy displayed was such that I thought we had to talk about it. Yes. It's by a gentleman called Janan Ganesh. But he had this article with a really striking headline. This was the year liberal democracy fought back. And I know that you were compelled to write an article in response to this. Yeah, that's right, because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me, to be honest. You can understand on a surface level, why he feels like that. Because liberal democracies had a rough time. Brexit, Trump, Johnson, Trust, Bolsonaro. And you can understand on the surface that they feel like they've got through the worst of it and maybe things are looking a little bit better now. But 
it betrays a real inability to to understand the political processes taking place beneath the surface, I think. Yeah, I agree. And just looking at the way that he opens this article, he says that there have been many setbacks for the US and its friends. And this has been painted by the enemies of liberalism as a story of inexorable decline. But he rejects this narrative and says that when events go the other way, i.e. when the, the liberals, the sensible centrists, the moderate establishment politicians do well, um, the liberals, his words, should bang their own drum. And this year has them spoiled for examples. And he goes on to list out these examples. So I thought we could take some of them and get your opinion. All right, well, let's start uh, with our own country, uh, uh, the, the location of this recording. Uh, he talks about Britain, and he says that Liz Truss's mercifully short stint, um, his words, as Prime Minister, about 44 days, um, famously um, less than the shelf life of a lettuce, um, was followed by the... Um, I wouldn't say the election, but the appointment of Rishi Sunak. And he calls this, at the very least, a moral upgrade. Ben, what's really going on? Is Rishi Sunak an upgrade over Liz Truss? Yeah, well, I mean, to to hold up Rishi Sunak as an example of the strength of liberal democracy, liberal democracy fighting back is uh, far-fetched, to say the least. Because, as you say, he wasn't elected. Uh, to, he probably, out of all the leaders of liberal democracies at the moment, he probably has the least mandate. He hasn't won a popular election and he didn't even win the election in his own party. He's in position really because of an establishment coup. That's effectively what happened. No Why problem. did the establishment feel compelled to do that? Well, because the, the Tory party election that delivered them trust as the leader um, <clears throat> was not to the liking of uh, the institutions of international capital, the markets, for example, the IMF, uh, criticised Truss's economic programme and they moved to get rid of her. Is it fair to say that Britain at one time was a very stable bourgeois democracy? I mean, I think Trotsky talked about the British ruling class seeing history not in terms of uh, months or even years, but centuries. Right. It was stable. It was stable for a long time. It was the envy, really, of Europe, if not the world, to be honest, uh, certainly the Tory party, as this machine, this political machine that was able to represent the interests of the ruling class in Britain and deliver stable governments. And from time to time, they would have to bring in the Labour Party to clear up the mess and then the, the a Tory party had made through corruption or mismanagement or something like this. But then the Tories would be back in power again. They didn't have internal democracy in the Tory party. Their leaders were appointed by the men in grey suits, as it was referred to, just the people behind the scenes, the representatives of the ruling class, and it was a stable, reliable representative of bourgeois interests. Boris Johnson and Liz Truss were not that at all, and Rishi Sunak is a little bit more that, although he's, he's very far from what, what they actually wanted. Remember, Sunak was in favour of Brexit, but uh, he's, a, he's a little bit better than what they had before, and they moved against Truss in order to, to put him in place, overriding the rules of like basic democratic rules uh, within the Tory party. And it feels like the acceleration in the last few years has been very rapid. Obviously, you had the impact of the 2008 crash, the world crisis of capitalism, which is, of course, connected to the quality of leadership that the uh, British ruling class gets. 
But in the space of a few years, you had the Scottish independence referendum, which very narrowly went the way of um, of Cameron and, and, and the Tories and the British establishments. Then Cameron threw the dice again on Brexit and lost in an attempt to unite his party. Uh, then you had the Corbyn movements, where the Labour Party moved dramatically to the left and the ruling class lost control over one of its two um, essential, the two essential pillars of its democracy, if you like. Uh, and then you had the pandemic, um, which threw everything into disarray. You had all the scandals that hit the Tory party, you know, um, Boris Johnson having parties in number 10 during lockdown, uh, his Fengali doing an illegal cross-country trip and blaming it on bad eyesight. And then you had um, Boris Johnson being booted out. Then you've had, what, three prime ministers in the space of three months, all the scandals affecting the monarchy. It feels like it's all gone wrong very quickly at the same time. Yeah, that's right. And I, I do really feel, especially with um, Brexit, uh, that was a bit of a turning point. You've got a bit of a market correction in a way that for a long time you've had this decline of British capitalism and alongside it, the beginnings or at least two wings developing within the Tory party, within the British uh, ruling class. One, a much more short-termist um, wing of the of the, of the the Tory party and the, and the capitalist class. And then those who are a little bit more far-sighted and who, can, who have a head on their shoulders and can think about the interests of British capitalism in a bit more of a long-term way. And this has been, these two trends really have been battling out in the Tory party ever since Thatcher. But what you saw with the Brexit vote was the triumph, the final triumph of the short-termist wing, which Thatcher first embodied and Boris Johnson really consummated that internal revolution within the Tory party. He, remember, kicked out a load of Tory party MPs who refused to back his prorogation of parliament and all these kind of things. That was really the the frankly lunatic kind of Brexit wing of the Tory party taking over. That's what that signified. Swivel-eyed loons, as they were described by Cameron. Yeah, exactly that. And that's a pretty accurate description. Because they are entirely short-termist. They can't focus on the actual interests of British capitalism. In that whole period of Brexit, Johnson even was reported to have said, fuck business. Well, the idea that when when warned that business was worried about Brexit... I'll check afterwards whether we have to censor that, but I think we're okay. Okay. Yeah, so he comes out with this complete disregard for the interests of British capitalism. That's an astonishing thing for a leader of the Tory party to to come out with. And so that really, it, things were building up to that point. You mentioned a few things that happened before the Brexit vote, but that Brexit vote really was a, a turning point, I think, for the Tory party. And they've been wrestling with the consequences of it ever since. So obviously... A number of challenges, but doesn't Ganesh have a point? I mean, uh, we look at the situation now, the establishment is not perfect, but they have their man uh, in the form of Rishi Sunak at the head of the Tories. The Brexiteer wing, at the very least, seems to have been temporarily put back in the box. And if you look at the Labour Party, Keir Starmer and the right wingers, the Blairites, have completely routed the Corbyn movements. Corbyn still doesn't have the whip. They made it very clear he's he's never going to run again as a Labour MP. The left has been completely demolished. Um, Starmer's coming out promising that he's going to carry out the interests of capitalism within power. There'll be fiscal responsibility. He'll go after migrants. He'll do everything the establishment said. Isn't it fair to say that uh, the the sensible liberal Democrats, from the perspective of the capitalists, are back in the driver's seat? Mm. 
Well, you're quite right. They have reasserted uh, almost complete control over... The ruling class has reasserted almost complete control over the Labour Party and a measure of control over the Tory Party, which it had lost. But I think this is quite superficial and quite temp- it'll, be, it'll prove to be quite temporary. Uh, because in any long-term decline, which we're talking about the long-term decline of British capitalism here being reflected in the political sphere, there are fits and starts and ebbs and flows, and it's not just a, everything is slightly worse day after day. There can be periods where actually things don't seem as bad as perhaps they seemed before. But as I say, that is entirely superficial and surface level, because if you look under the surface, actually Rishi Sunak, as for example, he gave a speech recently on foreign policy, and all that betrayed was, all that, all that reflected was a complete lack of any kind of foreign policy. And the reason for that, the reason why, this is the British capitalist class that previous 200 years ago had the biggest empire on earth. They don't have foreign policy anymore. And the reason for that is economic weakness at home and massive splits within the Tory party itself about what way forward. And those splits themselves are a product of a, of a weak economic base. They don't have a way forward base. The British capitalist class has no vision. It has no way forward. It cannot, as I say, it cannot plan. It cannot think very far in, in advance. So that's the reflect. There is a, there, I would say, although they've got their, their man in a sense in the leadership of the Tory party, can't do very much because the Tory party itself is split into all these different factions that reflect all the different pressures. But more deep than that is the economic crisis that is gripping Britain. And that is really the what we have to kind of understand. It's true that that is now not being reflected in the Labour Party, but that is going to find other reflections, and that's going to cause all kind of problems for the establishment. It's already starting to find a reflection in the revival of the Labour movement, right? Exactly. I mean, uh, at the time of recording, we've got strikes and planned strikes by train drivers, nurses, um, prior to that, uh, bus drivers, bin workers, council workers, um, even layers of society that you might call white-collar or middle-class, like barristers, have been, in, have been involved in strike action, lecturers as well. So there's a huge amount of pressure from the, the labor movements on the political establishment. There's the rise of the British working class in response to the fact that people's wages are being eaten alive by inflation, which right now is around about 11%. So I suppose no matter who you have at the top, not that uh, Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer are anything particularly special, but no matter who you have, in the next period, it's going to be explosive. People are going to be furious and people are going to have to fight just to stand still. That's right. So what does that tell us? Well, it shows us that, uh, okay, the establishment have reasserted their control. Are people rejoicing about that? Are people delighted? Oh, yes, finally, a bit of liberal democracy. That's what we've wanted all along. No, actually, what you've got now is a much more turbulent situation, as you've just described, in terms of social crisis and industrial relations and so on. It's precisely because the the establishment has reasserted its control over the political sphere that people are forced then to move on to the industrial plane, start taking strike action and so on, because the fundamental problems are still there. That's what I mean when I say it's a surface level thing. And the whole regime, the whole structure, this isn't just a lack of trust in the Tories, for example, or in an individual politician like Boris Johnson. Actually, by reasserting their control to a greater or lesser extent over both the main parties in Britain, all they're doing is is tarnishing the entire political system as a system with this brush of um, or they're causing people to reject it. They're tarnishing them all with the same brush and people are saying, well, it's not just this or that individual or this or that party. It's the whole lot. They're all untrustworthy. Politics in general, parliament, politicians, 
uh, and all the rest of it, we should just get rid of the whole lot, is is a, a mood that will begin to develop. It's actually a, it's not a strengthening of liberal democracy, it's a weakening of it. All right, so hopping across the channel, Ganesh also says that a glimmer of hope for the future of liberalism can be seen in France, where he writes Emmanuel Macron has become the first president of France to win re-election since 2002, says he retired Marine Le Pen of uh, National Rally, formerly National Fronts. In the process, he calls in the most successful electoral politician in the West, and he's a centrist and former banker. Yeah. Uh, imagine being told that amidst the populist pomp of 2016, he says. So, Macron, let's talk about Macron, because this guy was meant to be the liberal golden boy, wasn't he? He was going to ride in, beat the populists of the left and the right, and re-establish some sensible politics in one of the uh, political and democratic heartlands of Europe. Um, how's uh, Macron doing? Yeah, I mean, uh, this this description of him as the most successful electoral polit- politician in the West really made me laugh because I just think if this is if this is the most successful politician, that is a very low bar. That is not a ringing endorsement of liberal democracy uh, in any way because i mean take this the, the votes in the in the presidential election he won um he won 28% of the votes in the first round of that presidential election now 34% of people so far more than that didn't vote or spoil their ballots and over 50% of people voted for the anti-establishment candidates of the left or the right and and when and then when you move to the second round, basically in some total you can say that Macron received the support of about twenty percent of the French population. And these candidates on the left and the right being Mélenchon of Le France Insoumise on the left and Le Pen of National Rally on the right. One thing that um, really tickled me when I read this was I think about the electoral performance of the establishment parties in France. So the two main establishment parties historically have been the centre right. Republicans and the centre-left Socialist Party. Mm -hmm. Together, they got 7%. The Socialist Party, I believe, got 2%. I've read stories that they did so badly and lost so much money on successive electoral defeats, they had to flog Mitterrand's desk just to cover their debts, (laughs) basically. They've been smashed. They've been completely smashed. The Republicans did little better. Um, I mean, I, I think that if you look at France... Far from uh, a triumphant um, repost by the the centre, what you see is the splitting behaviour of of small parties on the left and also the Communist Party, we have to say, preventing there being a genuine choice in the second round because uh, Mélenchon, you know, for for, for all of his his limitations, he is a point of reference for the left. François Samise is the only serious, you know, electoral prospect on the left. And he would have gotten to the second round had it not been for the case that the the Communist Party and others um, ran ran, ran against him and split the left votes. And faced with a genuine option between an actual left-wing candidate and an actual right-wing candidate, um, it might have been a very different result. I mean, the the polarisation in French society that you've alluded to and that we'll speak to in a minute would have actually had a chance to express itself in those terms, as it was... French workers and youth had to choose between, uh, how did they put it, the brute and the banker, uh, two right-wing candidates. 
And straight after the second round of the elections, no, the first round of the elections, sorry, you had youth occupations and protests where one of the main slogans uh, was neither Macron nor the pen. So I think that you're absolutely right. Uh, these electoral results are not a vindication of liberal democracy. If anything, they demonstrate the massive collapse of support for the liberal centre and a desperate desire for an alternative. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you said in your in your introduction to this bit on France that Macron was supposed to come in and vanquish the these two, you know, the left and the right, the, the non-establishment parties, the anti-establishment parties. But actually, since he's been president, all that's happened is that they've got stronger to the extent, and Macron actually has got weaker. For example, the legislative elections, his party lost a uh, hundred seats, I think it was. They certainly lost their majority. Yes. And it's interesting. I mean, you see, you quoted Ganesh talking about how he'd managed to retire Marine Le Pen, but he's had to, his party's had to form an alliance, an electoral alliance, or a, uh, a parliamentary alliance with the with the national rally. Yeah, and ironically. You had liberal, reformist, so-called left commentators in this country and elsewhere saying that French workers and youth needed to hold their nose and vote for Macron to defeat the quote-unquote fascist Le Pen. And all you've got now is a situation where Macron's having to lean on national rally in order to get his policies through. All that they've really achieved is to mix their banners with uh, a vicious right-wing bourgeois who's going to go on to attack French workers and youth, who's already gone after pensions, public sector pay. Yeah, and the left commentators internationally and the the left within France, a big portion of them also, rallying behind Macron in the second round to defeat Le Pen. But yeah, the the whole thing is, um, it, it really shows the the, the weakness rather than anything else, uh, certainly not the strength of Macron's position as this great liberal champion. And of course, in the last few years, Macron's already been rocked by a series of movements on the streets and ruptions in the labour movements. You had the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest protests, which reached insurrectionary proportions in 2018 and 2019, drew in big layers of French society. Um, and that was immediately followed by an extremely powerful and radical series of strikes, beginning with the railways, but spreading to other sectors that was only cut across by the pandemic. And in the last period, you saw um, oil workers, oil refinery workers. That particular strike uh, died down um, for now, but it goes to show that there's still dynamite in the foundations, right? I mean, uh, Macron isn't going to have an easy ride of this. So let's talk about... Brazil. Uh, it was clear that Lula, at the very least, was used as a weapon to defeat Bolsonaro, who oversaw a, a very right-wing administration, attacked workers and oppressed groups, resulted in hundreds of thousands of needless deaths during the pandemic. And this victory is something that Ganesh presents as evidence of his argument. But I thought Lula was supposed to be a left-winger, not uh, a centrist liberal. What's going on here? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's true. And, and it, it's uh, it, it's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, it is very true. Like, we should celebrate the victory of Lula in that election because, because it was a defeat of Bolsonaro who did attack uh, workers, as you say. Um, <clears throat> but we should... we and, and Lula, historically, yeah, has been... He's a, a candidate of the Workers' Party and he, he does come from the left tradition. I mean, in this particular election, though, he really uh, massively watered down his program. 
And you've got to look at uh, not only his policies and what he was saying, which he, he was promising um, fiscal responsibility and all the rest. He, he's talking about uh, defending the interests of capitalism, basically. Um, but also his running mate, for example. This and, is uh, Geraldo Alckmin. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't, he's, this is not a man who has the interests of the working class at heart, uh, Lula's running mate in that election. And uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of the ruling, the capitalist class in Brazil, for example, the bankers and these types, they were saying quite openly, we support Lula in this election for the purpose of getting rid of Bolsonaro. But up to that point and no more beyond that, we don't support Lula anymore. Actually, we're going to work to undermine him and bring him down. And that's why we're pleased that we've got Alckmin in there and this kind of thing. So Lula was this kind of figurehead to to a kind of left cover, basically, for a more establishment type of regime in uh, a more classically establishment type regime in Brazil. Uh, to just to get rid of Bolsonaro, who they viewed as a little bit of a, a loose cannon. What strikes me about Bolsonaro is I feel that had there not been this great break of the bureaucrats at the top of the trade unions and also the, the, the Workers' Party holding back the masses, Bolsonaro could have been out on his ear years ago. Yeah. I remember some of the more uh, hysterical pundits internationally, people like Ganesh, frankly, saw the victory of Bolsonaro as evidence of fascism, of uh, military dictatorship reasserting itself in Brazil, but the second that he was elected, there were enormous protests on the streets, led by young people in particular. Bolsonaro supporters and, and thugs were beaten off campuses by um, by left-wing student activists. Our comrades in Brazil, um, from, from Esquerda Marxista, were raising the slogan, Fora Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro out. And the argument of the left, um, the left bureaucrats anyway, the, the leaders of the, of, of, the, of the labor movement, Lula included, argued that we couldn't use this slogan because Bolsonaro had to be allowed to complete his term of office because that's democracy. At the same time as calling him a fascist, they were also saying, but you have to let the fascist have his full term because he was elected and rules are rules. I mean, it, it, it's absurd, right? Um, and this argument that they had to wait before the election to get rid of Bolsonaro in quote-unquote the proper way, it feels to me like the the reformists and the bureaucrats leading the trade unions um, in Brazil and at the top of the left party are some of the biggest props for liberal democracy. Mm. It feels like they're some of the key figures holding it up. Yeah, that, I think that's absolutely the the case, and that's always historically that's always been the case. Uh, the left reformists have always had this elements of kind of you might call it a parliamentary cretinism about them, um, and this idea that we just have to obey uh, the rules that are set out, as if the capitalist class obeys those kind of rules. I mean, even with this presidential election that's just happened, for example, Bolsonaro was leaning on the police, and there was a lot of attempted repression of votes for Lula by the police. Is Bolsonaro obeying the rules? Is he is he following uh, the, the, the how things should be done in Liberal Democracy? Of course not. But the left tend to be, the, le the left reformists, the leaders of the, these left reformist leaders of the Labour movement, they tend to be blinded by these things and they lean on that kind of thing. Constitutionalism, liberal democracy, human rights, that kind of stuff, the rule of law, and they say, this is what we have to rely on to defend our rights, to defend the rights of and the And why workers. is that? 
why is it that they feel the need to lean on the letter of the law rather than allow the workers and youth to really fight? Well, I think it's because deep down they don't believe whether they well whatever they say, but deep down in the in the depths of their soul, they don't really believe that workers uh, and and young people and the masses in general are capable of fighting and winning and ultimately actually running society by themselves without bosses and bankers and landlords or anyone else. That workers, the ordinary people, are capable of running society and taking control of their own lives and and doing things for themselves. They don't believe that's possible. All they think is possible is a slightly better deal for those people whilst keeping the ruling class firmly in place. And so they, they don't want to, they're afraid to unleash that movement because they don't think it can succeed for whatever reason. Lula is now the president. He's got a bourgeois tugging on his shirt collar to make sure that he doesn't break his promises to the establishment. You've got an extremely bad economic situation in Brazil. Um presumably Lula is going to have to carry out the will of the, the capitalists or, and, and of their imperialist benefactors and attack the working class. Mm. What's that going to mean? Yeah, well, I think that is what's like to happen. I mean, Lula has obviously traded a lot on his past record in government when he did uh, reduce poverty and, and inequality to a very great degree. But that was a very different period, a very different time for Brazilian and world capitalism. And now they're faced with a massive economic crisis. And yeah, Lula is going to be held to the, the promises that he's made to the capitalist class to be responsible and so on. So yes, I think we are going to see uh, attacks, falling living, attacks on the Brazilian workers, falling living standards and so on. And I guess you had a bit of a glimpse of the, the power of the working class and youth when they were clearing out these blockades by Bolsonaro supporters who were contesting the results of the election. And I think those, those kind of scenes of blockades being set up in the roads by Bolsonaro supporters and then being forcibly cleared by the Lula supporters, this is the kind of thing that terrifies the establishment of the ruling class because this is fully extra-parliamentary, you know, it's beyond the, the limits of liberal democracy. And... They don't want to go down that route. There was enormous pressure on Bolsonaro to concede the election. He initially didn't seem like he was going to. Or he was keeping. He was a bit ambivalent. He was a bit ambiguous about whether he was going to properly concede the election. Enormous pressure came both from the domestic and the imperialists, the domestic capitalist class and the imperialists, on him to concede to avoid exactly that kind of situation developing. Because the election was on a knife edge. It was it was fifty point nine percent to to forty nine point one percent. The tensions are, were running very, very high already. And into this mix now, you're going to be adding more and more pressure of the economic crisis. Well, let's head north from Brazil. Ganesh talks about the mightiest of all democracies. In case any listeners are unsure, he is referring to the United States of America. He says that within the mightiest of all democracies, we can dare to hope because congressional Republicans did not take the Kremlin line or anything like it on Ukraine and midterm voters punished candidates who bore the stamp of Donald Trump, excuse me, um, and a second political life for the man himself is less probable now, if still plausible. So let's begin with that point first before talking about the situation in the US more generally, because it is true that um, the Republicans didn't have the, the red wave that some were expecting and that the, the liberal commentators were fearing. Why is that? Yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good point. It's a good question. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is is 
similar to some of what we've talked about, for example, in relation to Britain, a generalised disgust with the political class and a feeling that after years, decades of Republicans, Democrats, it doesn't really make a difference to the lives of working class people. There's a very high level, for example, of uh, abstention, especially among young people. I mean, in this, in, in these midterm elections, people were being told, this was what the, you know, the president, President Biden, went on TV and said, democracy is on the line in these elections. And yet 73% of people under the age of 29, under the age of 30, didn't vote, even though democracy was supposedly on the line. Because they're worried about bread and butter issues. They're worried about inflation and wages and uh, standards of living and so on. But I think also kind of an- another key aspect of this, and this is quite an interesting one from the point of view of liberal democracy, certainly the Democrats credit them not losing as badly as they thought they were going to lose in, this mid- in these midterms to one factor at least, being this decision of the Supreme Court in uh, Roe v. Wade over abortion, it was an attack on abortion rights, uh, which was seen as a kind of Republican attack via the Supreme Court, which has a majority of uh, Republican judges. And people went out and basically voted against that by voting for the Democrats and, and against the Republicans. Now, that's really interesting because that means that, yeah, you didn't have this this red wave that, that some were predicting, but that is essentially a vote against a key institution of liberal democracy, which is the Supreme Court. That was a protest against what is supposed to be an inviolable um, pillar of the liberal democratic establishment, the, 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 the highest court in the land. And people are so angry and disgusted with what that court is doing that they went out and voted uh, against it, basically. And I have to say, even though it's true that Trump's comeback wasn't quite the resounding success he might have liked, it feels to me that Trump's support, or at least a big part of the support that he enjoyed, came from the fact that he was willing to call out the limitations of the liberal establishments. Um, When he was saying to the Democrats, when he was having these televised debates with Hillary Clinton, and he said, you're all corrupt, and I know you are because I move in the same circles as you, I know the same tax loopholes that you exploit, Um, and he said he was going to drain the swamp, and he attacked, he went to open war with... Uh, with the State Department, with, 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 with the intelligence services. I feel like part of the reason that Trump had, uh, you know, ha- had a base of popularity precisely reflected that millions of Americans were disgusted with the state of play for American democracy. I mean, it can't be an accident that millions of people genuinely believe that Joe Biden stole the election from Donald Trump. It's not mm. true, of course, but it reflects something that people feel that way. Yeah, absolutely it does. I mean, it comes back to that same point, this general mistrust and disgust with the establishment, which is really the wave that Trump wrote, uh, rode. He was able to tap into that feeling. Uh, and that's what propelled him to the Republican nomination and the presidency uh, the first time round. And he's still got that. Remember, he got the he got the most votes of any, or the second highest number of votes in any presidential election. The most votes, as the Republicans are fond of saying, of any incumbent president in any election in the last presidential election. Joe Biden got more, but nevertheless, uh, he's still got a massive vote uh, that, that far exceeds anything his predecessors were able to uh, get. And so that says a lot about the support that still exists for him and his ideas in um, and his attitude, his approach in the US. I mean, you saw just the other day that he wrote on his social media platform 
that he he thought that the constitution of the U.S. should be terminated, as he put it, which has caused uproar. But there are senior Republicans, a lot of Republicans who haven't condemned this, who have just said, well, you've just got, you know, he says these things. Don't worry too much about it. It's not. But the idea that a presidential candidate, which is what he is now uh, for 2024, the idea that a presidential candidate is saying we should terminate the U.S. constitution, and, and he's the front runner to get that nomination, says, I think, quite a lot about the real crisis of, uh, the regime as a whole in liberal democracies. I mean, it's striking to me that you, know, you had the uh, aftermath of the 6th of January uh, riots uh, at the Capitol building. You had this promise by the Democrats that after all the fire and fury, after all the racism, after all the horrible uh, invective of the Trump years, you were getting back to stability you have the spending spree from joe biden which you know maybe built up some illusions initially now people are really hurting um you know mm-hmm. joe biden is thrown all in uh for the inter-imperialist conflicts uh over ukraine inflation's rising people are feeling their wages being eaten away which of course started before the ukraine war but was exa- exacerbated by it um it's not as though the Democrats have made a very compelling and convincing show for liberal democratic ideals. Mm. No, yeah, absolutely. That's the case. And it was the case, I remember we said this when Trump first got elected as president. We said the conditions for Trump were created by Obama. Trump was able to win in in the US that Obama had been presiding over. The massive inequality the BLM protests, the racism, the police shoot, uh, the, the, the police killings of black people and so on. All this kind of stuff was going on on, on his watch. Uh, and Trump was able to tap into the polarisation, the anger against the establishment and so on and come to power on that basis. And that hasn't gone away. Actually, that has gotten worse since then because the democracy that exists in the US, this formal democracy, Democrats, Republicans, what has that ever actually done for these people? It hasn't, it hasn't delivered. So why would they go out and vote to defend democracy? Uh, they'll look for an alternative. Now, Trump doesn't have that alternative. He says he'll drain the swamp. He says he'll stop corruption. He says he'll solve people's problems. He won't. And he proved that also when he was in power. He's a demagogue and he's a right winger and, and all the rest of it. But he taps into that mood. That's the point. And that mood, that searching for something anti-establishment, for something different, is stronger now. And similarly to this side of the pond, the pressure of that crisis has provoked a revival of the labor movements. I mean, the giants that is the American working class is beginning to stir from its slumber, right? You had the Striketober movement, really impressive unionization drives at companies like Amazon, at Starbucks. And since then, um, you've had this running dispute, for example, uh, between the rail bosses and the railway um, trade unions over well, nominally over sick pay, but obviously there are other things in the mix. And the Democrats have really shown where they stand because Biden tabled back-to-work legislation, Mm. banning the rail unions from going on strike over the Christmas period. And the Democrats across the board, from the so-called moderate wing through to the so-called progressive wing, I think all but one of the the squad in Congress uh, voted in favour of banning the rail workers from striking, including the likes of uh, Ilhan Omar and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, uh, which really shows what these people are about. Mm. Um, and and uh, now you have a situation where the democratic right to strike has been taken away. Now now the midterms are safely out of the way, 
by a democratic institution. Mm. And the head of the rail union is saying that America needs a Labour Party. I mean, it goes to show that something has to give in, you know, as Ganesh calls it, the mightiest of democracies. Mm. I think that's right. And, and what you've got then is this picture of this discontent bubbling beneath the surface, this searching for a way out, this pressure cooker, basically, with no valves on it. The valves have got this. Democrats are not giving a way out. Trump and the Republicans don't give a way out. They give the rhetoric and the bluster and so on. They give the slogans, drain the swamp. But they don't actually solve the problems that people are facing. People are desperately looking for something. You can see it bubbling up, this pressure cooker, and no safety valve, no nothing to allow them allow people to vent. Well, that is going to lead to really explosive things. We think we, we have seen big developments, like you just mentioned, in the, in the US labor movement. But that is really nothing compared to what is going to come down the line. So just to draw some of these threads together, Ganesh ends his article, it seems to me, with a note of caution, um, maybe betraying some of the fundamental lack of confidence of, of, of the liberals towards, towards their system. He says that despite this being the most fortifying year for the West in a long time, there is little reason to be complacent and even less to be magnanimous. So in spite of everything, it doesn't sound like he's all that convinced. Um, it seems to me that liberalism has endured two hammer blows in the last couple of years. You had the pandemic, and that was followed by the Ukraine war and, and the cost of living crisis that we're currently experiencing. Uh, what sort of state is Western democracy in, and does it have a future? Yeah, well, it's a big question. I mean... I do think, especially those things that you talk about, they're good examples. Pandemic and the war. I, I think the last few years has, in a way that we haven't seen before, really exposed uh, liberal democracy, Western democracies, as being, on the one hand, a little bit uh, maybe useless, completely useless is too strong a term, but they are not able to deliver uh, in the way that they kind of promise that they will. And also extremely hypocritical. So I'll explain what I mean. I mean, take the whole point of liberal democracy on this, on this point of it being useless, not being able to provide what it says it can provide. The whole point of liberal democracy, the reason why it is favoured actually by the capitalist class as a method, as a regime, as a way of, as a political system, as a way of running society, is because it provides individual rights and constitutions and different political parties and freedom of expression and all this kind of stuff. Which is, which is this kind of, it's, it's all these things that are supposed to show that we have choice, basically. That we have the ability to choose different parties. We don't like the policies of this party, let's pick a different party. We don't like that what that institution is doing, let's set up a regulator to make sure that institution doesn't overstep the mark. And so on and so on. We've all got our individual rights that can be protected. Liberal democracy is supposed to, it gives this kind of veneer, basically, of control uh, that we have over our, over, over our lives. Lenin talked about this. He explained this is why. Uh, the capitalist class likes liberal democracy uh, in general, um, <clears throat> but what you've uh, what you've seen in the in for example in relation to the the pandemic, so the pandemic required a massive injection of money uh, into the into the system, all these to, to prevent complete collapse, basically. And now we're all being required to pay for that. The working class is being asked to pay for that, not the capitalist class. The workers are being asked to pay for that, and every political party is saying that the workers need to pay for this. Right. So where's the choice? You could vote for the Tories, you could vote for Rishi Sunak, you could vote for Keir Starmer, your standard of living is still going to get worse. So where's the choice? 
this is what the and and you can you can vote for who you like, but the healthcare system is not is not working. Why isn't the healthcare system working? Because in Britain, for example, over decades, Tory governments and then Labour governments and then Tory governments again have not invested in the healthcare system. So what's the point? Why why have we what is what is this system actually delivering for us? That's what I think the pandemic has really exposed that. For all these individual rights and choices and everything else that you have under liberal democracy, actually, the system has let us down as a whole. The system as a whole, not this or that politician or this or that party, the system as a whole has let us down. And that's a really big blow for, for liberal democracy to have suffered, I think. And it's really been brought to the fore by the pandemic. So, I mean, the other thing that you've seen also in recent, this other blow that you talked about to, to Western liberal democracy um, is this war in Ukraine. And I think there's a real hypocrisy that has come to the fore there. First of all, what has been exposed by the war is just how much, for example, the European Union is is reliant on Russia, has been reliant on Russian energy for such a long time. So they big themselves up this wonder, these wonderful liberal democratic regimes. But actually, those liberal democratic regimes for many years have been propped up by a very illiberal regime in Russia. And they haven't had a problem with that. They've talked about their values and all the rest of it. Right. Germany in particular, we have to say, is exactly. like the, the, the powerhouse of Europe, its democratic and economic centre completely as it turns out reliant on cheap russian gas and oil exactly so it's it completely reveals the hypocrisy of of and, and the the shallowness of these liberal ideas that they, that they supposedly champion and actually then as the war has progressed you've seen the exact you've, you've seen the same thing brought to the fore even more as european as germany for example other european countries have tried to wean themselves off russian gas how have they done that they've gone and how is the u.s also trying to counter russian influence They've gone and made alliances with the Gulf states, these completely illiberal uh, regimes, which they don't mind about, because as long as they're on our side, we don't mind. We'll make friends with them. Although, ironically, um, the OPEC plus countries, particularly the Saudis, told the Americans where to get off when they were That's asked right. to increase oil production in order to bring the prices down. They said, uh, actually, we quite like the idea of uh, prices remaining high. That's right. So it's going quite badly for them, but they are they are working very hard to try and court these these completely illiberal states to try and get them on side and try and win them over. Proving that it's nothing to do with a battle for Western liberal de democratic ideals. It's nothing to do with that at all. It's just a fight to defend the interests of Western and particular US capitalism in this, this particular war. So the war also is striking this blow against liberal democracy by exposing the hypocrisy of these people. All right. Well, I suppose that the million dollar or BAP taking inflation into account, a uh, billion or trillion dollar question, Ben, is... If liberal democracy doesn't have a future, then what is the alternative? Yeah. Well, at liberal democracy, as I say, it's, it, Lenin describes it as the best political shell for capitalism. It is a system designed to defend the interests of the capitalist class. And what we should say very openly is that we are in favour of a political system designed to defend the interests of the working class. That's the kind of political system we want, which is not a liberal democratic system. The main thing that will that will improve standards of living for working class people, that will actually give them control over their own lives and, and the way they work and everything else, would be to plan the economy. Plan it in the interests of need. That's what we're interested in. Instead of running the economy for profit of a handful of people, democratically plan the economy in the interests of need. Meet, there is enough wealth in society to meet everybody's needs. You, you, we need a planned economy. That's what socialists argue for. Obviously, for a planned economy to work, you need it to be democratic. And this is what we learn, obviously, from the history of the Soviet Union. The collapse of the Soviet Union ultimately was because, yes, they had a planned economy, planned from the top down in a bureaucratic way. And that choked off economic production and ultimately caused the, uh, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
No, you can have a planned economy, but you can have it planned from the bottom up, if you like, with proper democratic input from the working class. And from that flows the kind of political regime, the kind of state structure that you would see uh, that we should be arguing for in a, in a socialist economy. Proper democratic input, de- democratic bodies that are not just talking shops and they're not just a cover for the interests of a very small number of people, but genuine democracy that actually has an impact on what is being produced and how that's impacting the standards of living in ordinary people. So that's what we're fighting for, is a democratic planned economy and all the state structures and the political regime that goes with it. Well, Ben, I thought that was great. Um, I think that our friend Ganesh has been well and truly dealt with. And I think that it's very encouraging to me that I'm increasingly finding on on picket lines, at university, at student protests, uh, and even online, for young people today, being called a liberal is an insult. Mm -hmm. And not because young people are right wing, quite the opposite. Being a liberal means that you're like Hillary Clinton and you're like Keir Starmer and all these nothings. Young people today, I'm finding increasingly are drawn to socialism. They're drawn to radical and revolutionary solutions. They see that there isn't a future in a society where it's just a question of you know, as as, as I, I think Lenin puts it, um, which um, besuited uh, bureaucrat gets to rob you every four years. Mm. Um, and, and I think that that being the case, it's socialism and not liberalism um, that has the future. Yes, I think that's spot on. All right. Well, that feels like a good note to end on. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Um, your article on this topic, uh, Liberal Democracy Fighting Back or Fracturing, is on marxist.com. It's also available on socialist.net. Uh, is it in the physical paper as well? Yeah, it's in it's in the current issue of the Socialist Appeal. Great. So pick that up and get a subscription if you haven't already. Uh, if you're living in Britain, if you're living elsewhere, then you can get the article online. Ben, thanks again. Uh, I've been Joe Attar. This has been International Marxist Radio. Thank you very much. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news, theory, and analysis. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website, marxist.com, and find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are. <laughs>